Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're talking to Jen Maxfield. Jen is a reporter and substitute anchor for WNBC-TV in New York. She spent nearly 20 years reporting in and around New York City. She's also the author of the new book, More After the Break, from Greenleaf Press. The book revisits news stories from Jen's reporting past. It's a book of storytelling and of where are they now reporting. And I think it's also a textbook of sorts that shows aspiring reporters, hey, this is what it's really like to do the work. Jen, thanks for joining us. Mark, thank you so much for taking an interest in the book and for having me on. So let's start where we start with everybody. What's your journalism origin story? So my journalism origin story, I I always really love to talk to people, meet new people. I'm definitely an extrovert, so that helps as far as being a TV news reporter. But interestingly, I actually always wanted to be a doctor. I always wanted to be like my dad and... uh, So my career goal as a kid was just to be a doctor so I could be like my dad. So, but because I like to talk to people and I like to write, I did always write for my high school newspaper. I wrote for my college newspaper, but I didn't really see it as a career path until sort of on a whim when I was a junior at Columbia, I responded to an ad for an internship at CNN at the United Nations. And it was on Fridays and I didn't have class on Fridays and I figured, well, maybe I'll try that. And it was really transformative. I had an incredible mentor in a CNN correspondent named Gary Tuckman. And this was not one of those internships where you had to get people coffee. I mean, this was really substantive work with writing CNN radio stories and going to news conferences at the United Nations. And that really changed everything. So I went from my pre-med classes at Columbia to political science and the rest is history, so they say. So you and I are of similar ages. You grew up in Tenafly, I'm from New York City. And I remember growing up watching Channel 2 News, Jim Jensen, Michelle Marsh, Dana Tyler, Marsha Kramer, Tony Guida, Pat Battle, all these names that are very common to people who are from the New York City area. I'm curious, what role, if any, did watching TV news shape you in any way? Well, that's an interesting question because my parents had pretty strict rules for us growing up. And one of them was we were not allowed to watch TV on school nights. So they wanted us playing our sports and doing our homework and reading books. So I did consume news sometimes on the weekends and I definitely did watch NBC New York and Chuck Scarborough, which is why it's so amazing now that I'm actually working with him. But I would say that generally the news I consumed was typically reading it. And uh, I read the New York Times and I read U.S. News and World Report. And so I was always informed about what was going on, but I actually did not spend a lot of time as a kid watching television. So was the reason then that you went the television route, was it partly because that was essentially your your first gig? That was part of it. I did always enjoy writing, which is part of why I went ahead and wrote this book. But one of the misconceptions about TV news that I've known for a while, but has really been highlighted to me in talking to people about the book, I don't know if everyone realizes that we actually write our stories and that writing is such a big part of my job. Yes, I interview people and yes, I go live, but I'm writing these stories every day. The reason that I still think there's probably some misconception about that is because the most common question that people ask me about my book is, did you actually write it? 
And I said, yes, I, I wrote it myself, every word, and, and I so enjoy writing. But I think that the fact that that's the number one question I'm asked perhaps just speaks to something where people may not realize that as a TV news reporter, I am writing a lot as part of my job. Sure. I worked at ESPN previously, and certainly all of the anchors that host this, the sports news shows, their sports center, they're all doing writing constantly throughout the entirety of, of their shift as an anchor. And people at the Bureau of Reporters certainly doing their share of uh, reporting and writing as well. Is there a turning point moment in your career? You mentioned the, the time at CNN, but is there a particular turning point in your career that is instructive in some way? I think the CNN work was really important because even after the internship, I was actually hired at CNN Financial News and I worked there part-time as an undergrad at Columbia doing everything behind the scenes. So I was doing, I was a production assistant for a show and I would book guests and do the pre-interviews and do the research. And there was something about getting that 360 view of how news gets on the air that was incredibly helpful as far as actually being able to do the work as an on-air reporter and understanding, and maybe more importantly, appreciating all of the work that goes on behind the scenes in order to get there. But as far as a turning point, look, I made a documentary when I was a grad student at Columbia. It was about mandatory minimum sentencing, and that's actually the last chapter of the book. And I think that investing that much time, it was a six month project and investing that much time and energy into the research and really putting my whole heart into that documentary. I may not spend six months researching stories now, but I do still try to put that same heart and care into the stories that I'm reporting on the news, even when I only have a day to work on it. The book is more after the break and let's talk about that. As I mentioned earlier, it's a combination of storytelling, where are they now, and textbook. Why did you write a book? So a typical news story that I've been reporting these last 22 years is 90 seconds long. It's about 250 words. My book is, it is 70,000 words, and it's <laughs> 250 pages long. I think that as much as I like the fast pace of local news, I did have an instinct to want to go back and investigate more of what happened after I left. I mean, we're with people for a very short period of time in their lives, but it's such an impactful time in their lives. And then we leave and we move on to the next story and, and never really know what happens next. So I think the viewers or the readers are interested in that too. So for me, writing the book had two advantages. In the first place, I could satisfy my own genuine curiosity about whatever happened to these families who I was with over the years and decades in news. And then the other aspect of it that I do think is really interesting is to have the time and the space to not always have to be rushing out the door to make my deadline, to really get those small details in there in the book that I just simply could not do in 90 seconds. And I think that part of the reason that so many people did agree to speak with me and did agree and did wind up revealing details to me that they may not have in the initial news stories is because I had the time to invest this round to just sit with them and listen for hours. So I appreciated the, the fact that you did this in that I frequently, I've, I was a newspaper reporter 95 to 2002, and I would... I have in the last two to three years frequently gone to Google 
and looked all these people up. I haven't necessarily made the, the contacts with them, but it's certainly, it's very tempting to do. And it's very interesting to see where people go from here or from the point at which you talk to them. Now, the book begins with the story of a survivor who lost both of his legs in the Staten Island ferry crash in 2003. The next chapter was about Hurricane Katrina and covering that as an outsider going from New York down south. Can you explain what went into covering those stories? Sure. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Googling people because one of my objectives in writing this book and in choosing the 10 stories that wound up in the book is I actually wanted to pick people who you would not get anything if you Googled them. The whole idea was I wanted to speak with people who, look, the people I interview on the news, they're not celebrities. They didn't crave the spotlight. They were thrust into this, right, by circumstances beyond their control. So I was really interested in investigating the people who had sort of faded back into obscurity and that the, the last Google search result you might get would be for the story that initially ended them up in our newscast. So you mentioned the first two stories in the book. Paul Esposito, who's the focus of chapter one, is such an amazing person. And I was so young when I interviewed Paul. I was, I was 26 years old and I was interviewing him at his hospital bedside and he was 24 years old. And I, I did really feel that connection where what had happened to him was so random and frightening that I felt any of us could have been lying in that hospital bed. And the fact that he not only welcomed us into his hospital room, he spoke with us. And now with the benefit of hindsight, that happened 19 years ago. Now to go back and to hear from him about all the response he got at the time with people sending him cards and saying that his optimistic outlook on life, despite his severe injury, had really helped them in their own life. It, it does really shine a spotlight, I think, not only on the, the triumph of the human spirit, which I think Paul really exemplifies, but also in, in the wide reach and the impact that our stories have on the news. And so, yeah, we follow up with Paul Esposito in Staten Island and then Hurricane Katrina, like you said, one of the things I love about local news is I'm reporting on my community. I live in the community that I report on here in New Jersey. I grew up here. I have a lot invested in the community. What was so interesting about Katrina is that I had to fly down to a state I had never visited before, parachute into this natural disaster. And I think that the upshot of that particular chapter is looking at how the community, whether it's it's the local community in Gulfport and Biloxi or the community of everyone in the country and, and maybe even the world responded to seeing those images and hearing those stories that we put out there. And in fact, some of the Hurricane Katrina survivors in Mississippi talk about how they really had not gotten that much attention because so much was happening in New Orleans. But then once the reporters like me started coming into town and broadcasting those reports, a lot more help came their way. You mentioned that these were stories that you did early in your career. How did your reporting style change? Like what were things that you learned that you've since implemented? I'd like to think that I learned things on every story that I go to, whether it's about how to approach someone at the scene of a natural disaster or how to really take a lot of information that may be thrown our way and boil it down into something that someone can listen to and understand. 
in just 90 seconds. But yeah, I think that the impact is cumulative. And I think that the more people I meet and the more places I go and the more stories that people share with me, I just feel that, that they all change me and, and change me really for the better as far as being an empathetic person and, and someone who really does not expect perfection from anyone. I mentioned a quote in the book that I really like, which is news is the first rough draft of history. And I've never been a perfectionist. I own my mistakes. There have certainly been things I would go back and change, but I think that it is a privilege to be an eyewitness to history and see what's happening. And, uh, and, and in the limited time that we have, put out that rough draft that everything else will be built on. You mentioned empathy. What do you tell your students about being empathetic when they're doing uh, their work? Well, one of the things that I tell them is that we're human beings first and we're journalists second. So I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey, the oldest of six kids. And my parents were very firm in a lot of their lessons to us and what they expected from us. And one of the things they used to always tell us was treat other people the way you wanted to be treated. And I've really taken that through my career and I think it served me very well where I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not in some of these chaotic circumstances and traumatic circumstances that people are in when I'm approaching them at a news scene. But I do always try to approach them as a human being and someone who, who genuinely cares about what they have to say and, and treating them with the same dignity and respect that I would want someone to treat me with. Certainly a theme that we've talked about frequently on this podcast. Another theme that's come up frequently are two things that stand out about the book, which are a vivid description and rich detail. You write about ferry bus and car crashes and it feels like we're there. You write about visiting these people at their homes and you've got the picture of just about everything that's going on at every uh, point in the story. And you know your subjects right down to the number of White Castle burgers they like. How do you teach note-taking like that to your students? Well, I, I wish that I had the time on a day of air news story to include all of these details that you just mentioned, which of course we don't, right? We're giving you the broad strokes typically. And I, I, sometimes I wish I had 10 minutes to talk about somebody because the families do share such rich and impactful details with us. But one of the things I told people, and, and this may be interesting for some of your audience who's working on longer form pieces, whether it's documentary or magazine journalism, or just long form journalism in general, I would actually say to people before I started the interviews, even if you think it's a minor detail or something insignificant, please tell it to me. Don't think you're oversharing. I actually want those small details. So like you said, the idea of how many White Castle burgers somebody ate on a night out, or the idea that one of the people I wrote about in my book loved Burger King coffee of all places. <laughs> those sorts of details to me really make it feel real and, and, and more immersive and that you're in the story. I mean, as far as writing the narrative in general, I think I know a lot of writers are listening to this. And, and I think We've all read those biographies or autobiographies, right, about a journalist where they're kind of moving through their career and they cover an inauguration or they cover a natural disaster, but it's always the journalist is at the center and these events are happening. I tried to flip the script in writing this book where I put the subject of the news story at the center of the narrative and I come into their life. 
And I think in some ways that's a more realistic way to tell these stories because that is actually how it happens, right? People are living their lives and something happens and then we show up to cover the story. But whatever's been happening in their life happened before we got there and a whole lot happens after we leave. And that's what I was trying to write about in this book. Let me just take it one step further. When you go to a house of uh, one of these people to, to talk to them, are your eyes like darting all over the place? Are you taking notes on all the different things on the walls and things of that sort? I have the advantage when I'm going out as a TV news reporter of having a photographer with me. So that person is my teammate and my partner, and they're really responsible for the visual aspect of the story. And in fact, sometimes I'll say to them, oh, could, could you make sure we get a shot of that? Or they'll say to me, did you see that on the wall? You should write to that. So we really are a collaborative team. And I can't say enough about the photographers I've worked with over the years because I could not do what I did without them. And, and all of them who I worked on the stories with, I interviewed for research for this book to make sure that my memories were accurate and that they remembered the same things. But yeah, so, but when I went back for the second time and I was reporting the book, yes, I did try to take detailed notes and, and really try to observe everything. I will also say that I had a more challenging time with those details and I needed more help from other interviews on the stories that were done before social media and before I had a camera on my phone all the time. So as I said, I've been a reporter for 22 years. Look, when I started out, we didn't even have GPS. We were using map books and phone books. And it, it doesn't seem that long ago, but when I talk about it that way, it is a long time ago. So once I had social media and there was more of an impetus to be taking pictures on stories, I'm a visual person and I found it to be much easier to remember what was going on when I could look back at a photo of the person's house or the news scene or the people I interviewed that day. Struggled more with the, with the stories pre-2012, I would say. Jen mentioned photographers and the people that she credits for helping her out. We have a past episode that touches on that, Russell Midori. You can look for that local photographer, also local to New York City, as a matter of fact. So the book articulates that you've spent a lot of time covering tragedy, but also highly inspirational stories like an Iron Woman competitor with stage four lung cancer. What is the experience of doing both of those kind of things like, and we have an upcoming episode that's going to focus on this. How do you keep a handle on your mental health as you're dealing with those sorts of stories? I think that's the tension in being a reporter and being a local news reporter where you're really going into people's lives. The tension for me is that I want to put myself in their shoes and I am an empathetic person. And I do sometimes say to myself in my head, what if this happened to me? What if this happened to my family? And I think that that's one of my strengths as a reporter, that I'm an empathetic person. However, I also need to balance that with my responsibilities outside of work. I'm a mom, I have three young kids, and I'm a wife and a daughter and a sister. And I think that it's important for me to, to draw a line. And maybe it means when I come home from work, I put my phone on the charger and I don't look at it again. Or maybe it means that after doing a really emotional interview, I need to go take a walk around the block and just clear my head. Or 
Maybe it means that when I leave work and an emotional story and I'm going to drive to my son's soccer game, I call my mom or my husband or my sister and talk about something that has absolutely nothing to do with work. And over the years, especially when my kids were far younger, I really didn't talk much about the details of the stories I was working on um, because it just wasn't really age appropriate in some cases. So yes, I do try to to really sit with families and be engaged and, and be there for them. I have the professional obligation of getting that story out on the air. And then I do try to protect my mental health by, by distancing myself at the end of the workday and you know recognizing that we, we wrote an impactful story, but now it's time for me to go home to my family. I wanted to talk to you about some of the stories that you do now just in your day to day and maybe we can pick one ideally and talk about kind of the idea all the way to completed product. And I was looking online some of the recent stories you've done up uh, summer camps in New York in need of counselors kids on bikes initiative in New York City city school buses that are being converted to electric. Those are just three examples so that um, I guess that kind of a companion to the hard news stuff that you've certainly done. Can you walk us through a story, maybe from a recent one that you've done, maybe from idea to completion? Sure. I, I work with the team. I always say I don't do any of this alone. And the, the school bus is going green is a really cool story. There are certain initiatives in different states around the country that say that diesel engine school buses all have to be zero emissions by a certain time. Usually it's like five, 10, even 15 years in the future. But some school buses are trying to get ahead of that, some of the bus companies. So there's this great company out on Long Island called Unique Electric Solutions, and they're actually taking the diesel powertrain out of these school buses and putting in electric, electric batteries. These buses charge just like any sort of electric car. So what I liked about that story is that they invited us to their workshop. We saw everything being made. We learned about how diesel mechanics are now being retrained to be electrical mechanics. And I felt like the story had a lot of value for the local community as well, because here's a company on Long Island, they're employing a lot of people, they're hiring more people, and we've all got these issues with supply chain and inflation and the high cost of fuel. And it seemed like they had some really smart solutions to that. So I was interested in, in reporting that story because I felt that it just touched on a lot of issues that people are thinking about right now, and it just shows the innovation. But yeah, it's not that I do the whole story and the setup myself. We have planning managers we work with, our assignment desk. I had a great photographer that day, and the whole story really came together well, and I hope that people are inspired by it and, and learn from it. Actually, I just wrote a blog about a behind the scenes on that story which is on my website, jenmaxfield.com, where I go into sort of a TikTok on how did we put this story together? I would certainly invite people to take a look at that. One of the other things that we ask people to do, especially veterans of the business, and you kind of do it at the very end of the book, you already alluded to this, maybe you have a different story, is tell the story of a mistake that you made and how it's instructive how it can be instructive to an aspiring journalist. So I'll leave that open to you as to what story you wish to tell with regards to that. Sure, so you touched on the story in chapter eight, 
which is the last chapter of my book. And I think it, it is really important to recognize, I said, look, I'm not a perfectionist. I make mistakes. I learn from it. We all do it. And nobody's perfect. But this one, I, I still feel terrible when I think about this. And I think it's important to be upfront about that. I was a grad student at Columbia Journalism School. And for my master's project, we were making a documentary on mandatory minimum sentencing and the Rockefeller drug laws which were mandatory minimum sentencing laws for first time nonviolent drug offenders in New York. So my documentary partners and I were profiling two men who had been sentenced for very long times to Greenhaven Correctional Facility. Now we had already tried to get a camera inside the prison. We were denied. So we decided we're writing about these gentlemen. We're going to go up. We're going to visit them without the camera just to get some research for our documentary and to meet them face to face. We'd been corresponding with them through letters for months. So we meet them face to face. We leave the prison and now we're making a documentary. So we need some video. So my documentary partner and I decided it'll be a great idea to just go right outside the prison gate on one of the side streets and get video of the exterior of the prison to cover that part of the documentary. Well, that was a terrible idea because we were shortly thereafter pulled over, brought back into Greenhaven, and we were questioned because they thought, since we had just visited these two men, that we were somehow trying to do recognizance and try to break them out of prison. And the next question was, well, did you give them any contraband on your visit? Which, of course, we didn't, but unfortunately, the prison authorities did major, major invasive cell searches for both of the men that we had visited. And they subsequently wrote us about it in letters. And when I received the letter and learned what our actions had caused for them, to them for them to have this invasive, frightening cell search and for them to worry that they were in some kind of trouble, all because of our naivete and thinking that we could get that video, I, I just felt, awful. And when I look at the letter today, I still feel awful. And I learned from that. And I think at, at 22, I just didn't have the experience to understand how my actions would ricochet back on them. And worth noting that you did keep the letter. My documentary partner saved all of our letters, yeah. which really informed that chapter because we had corresponded with these two men while they were at Greenhaven. And I should note that that they are both out and the drug laws have the Rockefeller drug laws have been overturned and the chapter does have really a, a remarkable story arc about what's happened to both of them since they got out of prison. Can you briefly tell us about the teaching that you do? I'm an adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism School. I graduated from the school in 2000 and for the last seven years I've been serving as an adjunct professor there. I get so much satisfaction out of teaching the students. I teach video one, I teach on-air skills, and I generally, uh, not only do I teach the students in the class, but then I like to think that I'm a mentor for them for years after they graduate, and I try to be there for them, and I ask them to send me clips, and I just get so much satisfaction out of watching people turn their dream into a reality. What's your most optimistic perspective regarding the future of TV news? I think that TV news has a, a real place and an importance. 
And certainly local news, I think, is incredibly important. And we recognize now that not everyone is getting the news stories at 6 p.m. on the television that they're watching. But I think it's all about the content and the stories that we're telling. So whether you watch my story on television or you get it on Twitter, or perhaps you watch it on streaming, there's so many different ways that you can access the stories that we're working on. And at the end of the day, the delivery methods are going to change, but the stories and the connection that we build in the community, that, that is still critically important. And I don't see that going anywhere. The book very much about stories and connection. You're also doing a podcast in companion with that. Can you just let us know about that? Yeah, so I, I know you've been doing a podcast for a while, and I think that the, the podcast sort of scratches that same itch that writing the book did, which is the 90-second news story, it, it works for the format, but I think there are oftentimes more things that I wanted to say and more information that I wanted to get out there. And I do like the long-form aspect of a podcast where we can really dig into some of those issues that have come up in news stories over the years. And also, again, talk about the impact of some of the stories, both on the community and individuals years after they've been on the news. The podcast, this podcast is called The Journalism Salute, and we salute you for your good work, and we ask you to pay it forward. Is there a journalist or a journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? I am very admiring of all of my former students, but I'll mention two of them today, both of whom are working for News 12. And Jordan Kissane is working for News 12 in the Bronx, and she's doing incredible work. And she's working on the night shift now, so you can catch her on News 12, the Bronx. And, and she was in my on-air skills class and did a fantastic job. And I would also mention Judea Murray, who is also with News 12. And she is the host and the creator of a series called On a Lighter Note, or maybe it's on a positive note. It's on a positive note. And Judea takes stories from the community that are uplifting and that inspire and are hopeful. And I, I watch her segments and I see so much of her heart in those. And I try to lead with my heart also. And I really appreciate the work that she's doing for News 12. Lead with your heart, certainly a good takeaway. The book, More After the Break, a reporter returns to 10 unforgettable news stories. It's great. You might want to have a tissue nearby. Jen, thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you so much for the work you do and for taking an interest in the project. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.